the most notable thing about this election day is that it's been a year since election week. Election month, you mean? We keep and saying months, <laughs> plural. Let's be real. Was... Yeah, I guess it was election, but it was like three months. We yeah. live blocked straight for over a month. I had to celebrate my birthday on one of our late night podcasts last year. So <laughs> here's my prayer that this election is over by Friday. Yes. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk and Election Day is here. The two statewide races on Tuesday are the governor's races in Virginia and New Jersey. We're paying particular attention to Virginia, where Republican Glenn Youngkin has taken a half-point lead over Democrat Terry McAuliffe in 538's polling average. So in other words, the polls are tied. We'll take a look at what has made that race so close in a state that Biden won by 10 points. But those are also not the only races being decided on Tuesday. There are local elections and ballot initiatives across the country, which we'll also dig into in mayoral races in Boston, Cleveland, Minneapolis, Seattle, and Buffalo. Voters will decide between more moderate and progressive Democrats. And in Minneapolis, voters are being asked whether to significantly alter the oversight and makeup of the city's police force. Here with me to discuss our politics editor, Sarah Frostenson. Hey, Sarah. Hey, how are you? Doing well, you know, uh, reflecting on the year since our last election week, although, as you pointed out before we started recording, it was actually election month um, or maybe even months. (laughs) Um, So here's to this just being either election day or maybe election days and not election week. (laughs) We'll see. Also with us is elections analyst Jeffrey Skelly. Hey, Jeffrey. Hey, Galen. And also here with us is Kristen Soltis-Anderson, the co-founder of the Republican polling and research firm Echelon Insights. Welcome back to the podcast, Kristen. I'm so glad to be back. Thanks for having me, Galen. Always great to have you. So later on, our colleague Nathaniel Rakich is also going to join to talk about some of the local races. As I mentioned, we've got a lot to cover today, but I quickly wanted to ask our favorite polling question before we dive into the race in Virginia. And that question, of course, is good use of polling or bad use of polling? Last week on this podcast, we mentioned that a certain someone was turning 40, and I know he's not here today, but Micah's birthday sparked a whole internal debate at 538 about which decade of your life is the best. And it turns out there's actually polling on this. So YouGov surveyed Americans aged 18 to 80, asking them by decade, what are the best years of your life? Now, the result was essentially a tie between one's 20s and 30s. So 24% of respondents said your 20s are the best years of your life. 23% said your 30s are the best years of your life. However, there's kind of a problem here. Many of the respondents of the poll had never experienced all the decades of life under consideration. So can a 20-year-old reliably say whether your 30s are better than your 60s? They broke down the responses by age of respondent, so you can see how different people in different stages of life answered this question. So all of that is to say, this is the question that we're gonna try to answer. If you want to know what the best decade of life is, can you ask a random sample of Americans, or do you have to ask only people who have actually experienced each decade? So say only ask 70 year olds or above, which is the better use of polling. So maybe it's not a good use or bad use of polling so much as a, which is the best use of polling. Kristen, you're new to this segment, so let's have you kick us off. How do you interpret this? So I think the way they've asked this question is the best case scenario for how you do it. Because what they've said is not just what are the best years of your life, but they say which age range do you think represented or will represent the best years of your life? So what's interesting is they do have this small teeny tiny cross tab of those who are 18 to 19 years old. And of course, for them, their expectations are that the future will be better. So the plurality of them choose 20 to 29 years old. That's also the same result you get amongst 20 to 29 years old. Now, it's true that if you are 30 to 39, you are unlikely to choose 60 to 69 years old as the best years of your life, where if you are actually in your 60s, You were at least 21% of them chose that as the best decade. There is this neat pattern where whatever decade people are in tends to be, if not the most popular response, the second most popular response for any group. But I think because the question wording does give you a chance to talk about your expectations, there's still some value in that. Sarah and Jeff, do you agree? 
I think it's telling that overall, the two decades that really stand out are 20 to 29, 30 to 39. But I am skeptical that someone 18 to 19 can really assess where they're going to be in their 60s or in their 70s. And I thought the way you got framed it around most people say that they like the decade they're in, or as Kristen was getting at, it's the second most popular, does kind of speak to people like the decade they're living in best. But again, overall, I think had you just pulled 70 to 70, 79-year-olds, perhaps that would distort this image because I think you would have a higher percentage of people saying, hey, your 70s are great because they're actually 70. So I think the way YouGov structured the poll was smart. And I think it's telling that, yeah, it's your 20s and 30s that really stand out. It's all downhill from there. I don't know how feasible it would be, but something along the lines of if you did poll only older people and somehow could control for the fact that they are more likely to say their current decade for the 70 to 79-year-old range, for instance. Because at least a fair number of them obviously did say some younger age ranges like 30 to 39 and 40 to 49. So maybe they could give a better overall picture of how when you're older, how you would look back. This is a challenging question to ask people who haven't lived through the decades that they're being asked to opine on. So like Kristen said, I think it's they sort of did the best job they could with it. Yeah, I mean, if you look at just those 70 to 79-year-olds, so 15% said that 70 to 79 was the best decade, but that was the third highest ranking. So 70, 79-year-olds said first was 30 to 39, so 20% said that, and 17% said it was 40 to 49. That's obviously significantly different than if you ask 20 and 30-year-olds, what they think. In particular, 20-year-olds think far and away their 20s are their best, where for 70-year-olds, 70, 79-year-olds, 20s didn't rank all that high. So if we're trying to find the real answer, if we want, you know, what years are the best years of your life, do you ultimately think we can ask a random sample of Americans, or do you think we should focus on the numbers in that 70 to 79-year-old column? I think you've got to analyze this by crosstabs. I think looking at an aggregate top line number for this is a little silly for all of the reasons we've just described. Because while I think it's interesting to see how someone in their 18 or 19-year-old time frame thinks about their future, like that's an interesting data point, but it's also fundamentally different than asking someone who is 70 to 79 to reflect back. I mean, I remember when I was in high school, my expectation was that college was going to be the best years of my life. And now that I'm in my late 30s, college was great. Loved my time at the University of Florida. Go Gators. But actually, I feel like <laughs> I have more fond memories of high school and of what I might call freshman year of life, like that brief period of, you know, a year or two after you graduate from college, I may have more fond memories from that time. So it's interesting to understand where someone who is young thinks they'll be down the road, but it's a different question than asking someone who is down that road to reflect on their past. Yeah, I mean, look, it's nice that 15% of those ages 70 to 79 think that that's the best decade, you know, in my 30s, I, I take hope with that. But I also think there is a clear trend of your 20s are good, 30s are good, 40s are like kind of okay. And it does seem to go a little bit downhill after that. And maybe that's part of midlife crisis, you're starting to have health issues. I think this in some ways kind of matches like life expectancy and just the issues you have as you age. Why are people biased towards the current decade that they're in? I would imagine that they're biased toward the decade they're in because they feel aware of all of the benefits that they have gained over the years to get them to where they're at. But it's easier to think of the negatives in the future, like Sarah mentioned the health issues. It's easier for me to imagine doctor's office appointments getting less and less pleasant as the years move on, walking up and downstairs getting less and less pleasant as the years move on, and so on and so forth. But I'm sure, you know, I, I think about my own parents, and they're in their 60s, and actually they seem to be having a great life. You know, being sort of early retired, get to hang out with your grandkids, they can travel when they want. That actually seems like, you know, right now I am working not just nine to five, but, you know, working constantly, I enjoy and thrive on my work. But there's got to be also some benefit to that period of life when you can just slow down and enjoy things in a different way. Yeah. All right. Well, let's move on. I think we've said this is a good use of polling or the best way that you could poll this question from YouGov. This sparked a lot of debate internally at 530, as I mentioned, over which decade of life is the best. Listeners, if you have thoughts on this, please get in touch. Let's talk about Tuesday's elections. But first, 
Today's podcast is brought to you by Shopify. Ready to make the smartest choice for your business? Say hello to Shopify, the global commerce platform that makes selling a breeze. Whether you're starting your online shop, opening your first physical store, or hitting a million orders, Shopify is your growth partner. Sell everywhere with Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system. Turn browsers into buyers with Shopify's best converting checkout, 36% better than other platforms. Effortlessly sell more with Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Did you know Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and supports global brands like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. Join millions of successful entrepreneurs across 175 countries backed by Shopify's extensive support and help resources. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Start your success story today. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash 538. That's the numbers, not the letters. Shopify.com slash 538. Tuesday's statewide elections in Virginia and New Jersey will give us some sense of how much the political environment has shifted in favor of Republicans since Biden's election. As one benchmark, Biden won Virginia by 10 points in 2020, and he won New Jersey by 16 points. Virginia is being more seriously contested by both parties, so let's start there. According to 538's polling average, Glenn Youngkin and Terry McAuliffe are essentially tied, so 47.6% for Yunkin, 47% for McAuliffe. How would you characterize this race, Jeffrey? Do we have enough polling for a reliable average? And does the polling paint a similar picture? I mean, I would say we have enough polling to have a, a decent average of the race. And I think that generally a lot of the polls do agree that it's a very close race, which does raise questions about the potential idea of herding which is some pollsters coming in and maybe tweaking their numbers slightly because they're afraid of having a notable outlier. I will say at the same time that there are polls like those from Fox News, which showed Yunkin ahead by eight points in its most recent survey that are clearly not hurting. So I I don't think there's a particular hard takeaway that that's going on. But I do think that the race is probably best characterized as McAuliffe had a narrow lead for a long time, Something appears to have shifted, at least to some extent, to the point where Yunkin is either tied or ahead of McAuliffe, and that going into the vote on Tuesday, that it's extremely close, and either party could come out on top of this. What is responsible for this race becoming more competitive? Oof, that is tough to unpack. You know, there's been a lot of emphasis here on Biden's overall approval rating, which has dipped earlier in the race. So our polling average goes back until August. McAuliffe had a six-point lead, essentially, over Yunkin, and Biden's approval rating was starting to dip in August, but up until that point had been much better than where it was. And what's interesting, like, Biden won Virginia by 10 points. So, you know, if you extend that to Biden's overall approval rating, which is about eight points underwater nationally, you think it would be about two points up in Virginia, given how they voted in 2020. But when you look at recent polls there, you know, Biden's approval rating in a Fox News poll was eight points underwater. It was nine points underwater in a recent Monmouth poll. And then it was 10 points underwater in the Washington Post's most recent poll. So Biden is not polling well in the state. I think you are seeing a real drag on McAuliffe's numbers as a result, but it's hard to unpack how much of it is just Biden. By the same token, some of the issues in the race, whether it's the economy, which some surveys have suggested are voters' number one issue, or whether it's education, which is either number one or number two for a lot of voters, Yunkin either you know has an advantage on the economy in particular, or on something like schooling, a slight advantage, or it's tied with McAuliffe, and those have become two really like heated issues that I think have been harder for him to manage. He's done consistently better on you know who would handle the pandemic better, but that just doesn't seem to be top of mind for voters. Or if it is top of mind, it's more related to the economy than say safety around the pandemic. Yeah, Kristen, I know that Echelon has done polling in Virginia. I'm curious how you interpret what has happened in Virginia over the past few months. The first thing we should point out is that Republicans would be in a very different position in Virginia if they're, I guess we call it a primary, their weird primary caucus hybrid had gone a different way. 
candidates do matter. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about the issues and the national political environment and its effect on this race. But there is an alternate universe that is probably not too far from the one we're in where Republicans in Virginia do what they have tended to do over the last decade, which is from time to time they choose people who don't really have a chance at winning statewide. And you had in that primary a candidate named Amanda Chase who fashioned herself as Trump in heels. Those are her words, not mine. And yet she was not successful in that primary. So I think we would be looking at a very different race if the Republican candidate was someone who was very strongly and obviously in the Trump mold, someone who was engineered in a lab to sort of fire up the more extreme pieces of the Republican base, versus someone like Glenn Youngkin, who even Terry McAuliffe sort of pokes fun at him for, you know, being this nice guy wearing a fleece. And he's someone with no voting history in the past. So this is his first time running for office. You don't have a record you can poke at. In some ways, Glenn Youngkin is uniquely suited to sort of weather the storm of running in a Biden plus 10 state and to be able to catch the momentum that you might get from a national political environment shifting your way, because he's just a less polarizing figure than some alternatives that Republicans could have nominated. Yeah, I think that's very, very true. You know, in an alternate universe where the GOP held a true traditional primary, there was concern within the Republican Party of Virginia that if they did that, Amanda Chase would win the nomination. And she might have been dead on arrival as a candidate. Whereas Youngkin also, I think another thing that's that's worth mentioning here is that Youngkin had a lot of personal resources he could bring to the table too, as a former CEO of a financial company, uh, the Carlyle Group. He has immense personal wealth and he has self-funded a good chunk of his campaign while also raising plenty of money too. And that has basically allowed him to be at parity with McAuliffe, who's known as a really good fundraiser. And the last time that McAuliffe ran for governor in 2013 and won, he outraised his opponent, Ken Cuccinelli, who was the Republican nominee, by a fair bit. And I think that was an advantage. It was also easier to paint Cuccinelli as like a right-wing ideologue. And see, Youngkin is, is more difficult to do in that way. And so that's actually a kind of an interesting difference because otherwise the 2013 race and the 2021 race have a few similarities in that there was a somewhat fairly unpopular Democratic president. But yet in 2013, McAuliffe won by a couple points. Remains to be seen how it's going to work out this time for him. But I do think that it's easy to see that Youngkin is a, a stronger Republican nominee than Cuccinelli was. Yeah. And on that note, in the Washington Post's most recent poll, they looked to see, you know, okay, of Biden voters, who's backing McAuliffe? And he's only got about 89%, suggesting that there is some breakoff there, either for Yunkin or undecided, whereas Yunkin had 99% of Trump voters. And he seemed to have success in terms of either winning over independence in the state or just making inroads with voters who are a little bit more uncertain. And there's this quote from someone in the Washington Post story who had backed Trump in 2016, but then backed Biden in 2020. And it really stood out to me because I think it's getting at what Kristen and Jeffrey are talking about in terms of Youngkin's ability to kind of merge both the very like Trumpy aspects of the party, but then maybe some voters more moderate and in the middle. And so she told the Post reporters, I don't see him as being crazy and out there. He's being supported by the Republican Party. So he's got to spout some of that stuff that the Republican Party feeds him. And I understand that. And that some of that stuff was about election integrity. Youngkin has flirted with the idea that Biden perhaps didn't win the election fairly. And I just thought that was interesting that this independent voter who had backed Biden in 2020 is now kind of thinking this through of, well, he might say X, Y, and Z talking points I don't agree with, but there's still these other reasons why he appeals to me. And I think we're finding a number of voters in that boat currently. Yeah. When we dig into the cross tabs, you mentioned that some Biden supporters are not supporting McAuliffe or either undecided or supporting Youngkin. What other shifts do we see in the cross tabs, either in terms of party identification, racial or ethnic breakdown, even, you know, geographic location. Like, are we seeing the suburbs shifting back towards Republicans after a solid four years of them running from Republicans? So one demographic that I think is really interesting, and I know we're certainly going to dig further into this, and my Echelon Insights poll, we found overall that in general, you've got Youngkin up by about, you know, three points over McAuliffe. But when you break it out by, are you a parent of a K-12 student or not? Mm. If you're not a parent, it's McAuliffe plus one. But if you are a parent, it's Youngkin plus 15. 
that's a really, really big divide. And if you think about, you know, K-12 parents, in general, they're going to be slightly on the younger side. This is not a demographic that's going to have that big batch of senior citizens voters that are are so critical to Republicans' fortunes these days. These are going to be younger folks, again, often living in suburbs. And the fact that you've got, at least in our poll, Youngkin winning those folks by 15 points does suggest that he's not just amping up traditional Republican constituencies, but he is clawing back some of those voters that did sort of fade away from the GOP coalition during the Trump years, and perhaps even bringing in some folks who have never really thought about voting for a Republican before. Yeah, actually, one of the interesting contours of this race, to me at least, is that Youngkin has pulled even or even ahead of McAuliffe on ter- in terms of who voters trust most in education. And I think what's important to understand is that education is an issue where Democrats traditionally have an advantage on you know, mm-hmm. who you trust more or who you think would do a better job. There are certain issues that each party tends to have more issue ownership over, and education is one where Democrats tend to do better. So the fact that the Republican nominee can come in and be in a position to pull better on that issue is maybe a way of bringing in some voters who might not have otherwise voted for him or, you know, it just shows a strength that I think a lot of Republican candidates would not usually have. And now maybe some of that is also down to McAuliffe in a debate saying, I don't forget the exact quote now, but something about parents versus school boards who should have more control over things and him saying that parents should be telling schools how to run themselves. And that quote, of course, has been used by Youngkin very effectively. And it also plays into a lot of debates that are going on right now about how things like race are taught in schools, other elements of education, especially coming out of the COVID-19 pandemic, concern about the education system as a whole. So the fact that I think that Youngkin has made such inroads on that issue is uh, a sign of his strength. And just to say, the actual quote was, quote, I'm not going to let parents come into schools and actually take books and make their own decision. I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. Right. There's like important context there. But of course, in politics, context can get killed really quickly if you've got a nice five, 10 second clip to run in an ad. Yeah. Education in particular, with everything swirling around the country on critical race theory and what is it that schools are teaching our children about slavery in America, about racial inequities, that has become a center stage issue here in Virginia. And I was curious going into this race how important that issue would be for voters. You know, earlier in the year, it looked like maybe the pandemic would weigh on their minds more. But education is either the number one or number two issue, as we've talked about previously. And I think as Jeffrey's getting at, it's such a a fraught question around, if you ask parents, both Democrats, Republicans, most of them are going to say, yes, I think parents should have more of a say than say school boards in determining a child's education. The Survey for American Life at the American Enterprise Institute had done a recent big national survey on this issue in September, and they had found that line. But they'd also found very stark partisan divides on how slavery and racial discrimination should be taught in schools or how human activity is contributing to climate change. And there's been a number of stories coming out of Loudoun County in Virginia around sexual assault and how that happened in a high school and the extent to when the school knew what, when, and when parents knew what. And I think that issue has bubbled up in such a way that it's tied to the national conversation. And I think, you know, it's something we've long talked about on this podcast that we expect because it's been designed as such that critical race theory would become kind of an issue Republicans would push on in 2022 in the hopes of winning back suburban voters to some extent. And we'll see the extent to which that really happens in Virginia, you know, on Tuesday. I think it's important to point out that the education issue itself, part of what has been very savvy, I think, about Youngkin's handling of the issue is that it is a very big umbrella under which a lot of other concerns can fall. So you may be a parent who doesn't care at all about whether your children are being taught about something like systemic racism in the classroom. That's fine. But what you're frustrated about was that you feel like your child lost a year last year. You saw what they were learning when they were taking Zoom school at home, and you were a little surprised by what was considered a quality education. And that frustration is still there and is still latent and is still brewing. Or you might be upset that your school is requiring kids who are very young 
young to wear masks. So COVID can be an education issue. Public safety can be an education issue. Sarah mentioned the really horrible story about sexual assault out of Loudoun County. There are also a number of local school districts that made moves toward removing police officers from schools in the wake of the Black Lives Matter protest, et cetera, the idea, well, we don't want cops in our schools. There are now, even in progressive communities, sort of pushback against that. Well, wait a minute. Maybe it is a good idea to have a school resource officer in my community. And you've seen that touched on in some of Youngkin's messaging. And then finally, there's the question, and it's not just about critical race theory itself. I don't think you've heard Glenn Youngkin put that phrase in an ad, but it's about, you know, in Virginia, there's a lot of debate around things like eliminating the admissions requirements to some of the gifted and talented high schools in Northern Virginia, or eliminating gifted and talented programs entirely in sort of an aim toward increasing racial equity. But that's something that if you're a parent of a gifted and talented child, your politics become secondary and you're like, wait a minute, what's going on? So under this education umbrella, it's not just about the thing that gets the most heat online, which I think is the critical race theory piece. There's a lot of stuff that parents from across the political spectrum can say, I'm not happy with the way things are going in schools. Glenn Youngkin seems to be the one who says he wants to fix it, so I'm willing to hear what he has to say. Kristen, Echelon Insights has actually done polling and research on what Americans think about school curricula to the extent that this is an actual question about what children can or should be taught in the classroom. What did you uncover in that polling? We did a study on behalf of an organization called the PI Network, P-I-E. They're just sort of a convening group for education reform organizations across the political spectrum. So this was not a poll from the right or the left. And we were trying to understand, is there any bipartisan or nonpartisan consensus around how we should be talking about race in schools? We actually found there are a number of areas where you find majorities of Republicans and Democrats agreeing, whether it's we need to make sure that curriculum includes more about something like black history, that it's not just relegated to a month, but that it's woven throughout, that students are exposed to more authors and historical figures from communities of color, that there's bipartisan consensus that we can talk about the good and the bad for folks like historical figures of the past. I think in our survey, we used examples like Woodrow Wilson and Thomas Jefferson. Even Republicans are like, we're fine with you telling the complete story of these men. Where you began to see more divides open up was one, just on the question of, do we focus on this more or are we focusing on it enough? Focusing on the issue of racism itself. That for progressive parents and Democrats, they're much more likely to say, we need to be focused more on this in our schools. For Republicans, there's actually not a ton that say we should focus on it less, but there's a sense that, okay, well, well what we're doing now is probably enough. And I think that more or less construct is interesting because for those who say we're focused on it enough, in our qualitative research, their concern was, if you focus on it too much, do you actually divide kids more by taking, say, a young child who isn't thinking about their friends in terms of race and putting race and those racial dynamics in their minds? And the other question is when you talk about more versus less focus, if you're focusing on one thing more, what are you focused on less? What is being lost in that process? And that's why, again, my earlier point about Youngkin being able to tap on some of these anxieties about things like gifted and talented education, et cetera. Okay, if you are adding in more focus on X, well, what's the Y that you're losing? That's, I think, one area where you begin to see more divides open up. I think part of the reason that everyone's so interested in the governor's race in Virginia is to the extent that it tells us something about 2022 and the political environment overall. We've talked a lot about education. The economy is one of the other main topics that comes up in terms of voters making the issues that are important to them. Do we see this as a foreshadowing of the 2022 elections, or is Virginia unique? So I think it's foreshadowing because everybody loves a winner. And while Republicans at the moment are not in the wilderness, in part because a lot of Republicans are not convinced that they actually lost the 2020 election at the presidential level, but by and large, Republicans are going to be looking at 2022 and figuring out, well, what's a recipe for success so that we don't do what we did in 2018? That was the last midterm, went really badly for the GOP. How do we win back those voters that we lost? Oh, so you're already thinking Youngkin's a winner. So I actually think even if Youngkin doesn't win, I think if it's even close, and I have this debate with others on the Republican side, there are some that say, no, 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 Youngkin has to win for this to be true. I think this will be true even if Youngkin makes it close. If Youngkin even makes it close in a Biden plus 10 state, he will have demonstrated a way to sort of outperform 
expectations by bringing pieces of the Republican coalition back that had been lost before. So I expect to see a lot of Republicans talking more about education if Youngkin is either successful or close. I expect to see them talking a lot more about inflation, kind of regardless of whether Youngkin is close, because that hasn't been as specific to his campaign versus just a Republican message overall. But I think this is foreshadowing, not necessarily if Youngkin wins, Democrats are doomed, but if Youngkin wins, Republicans across the country are going to try to do what Youngkin did. They're going to try to take that playbook. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, the issues that we've seen come up in the gubernatorial race in Virginia are very much ones that we will see next year in 2022. And actually, to something that Kristen was pointing out there is even if Youngkin doesn't win, we know it's probably going to be pretty close if he does lose. And so for me, I think it's important for people to understand that analytically, when you think about just what this race means, a 50-49 McAuliffe win and a 50-49 Youngkin win are not really substantively different. They are definitely different for governance purposes. They're different for Virginians, but not for what it tells us about the national environment. Exactly. If we're trying to understand what's going on politically in this, you know, in this environment, they're not really all that different at all. And I'm always leery at this point because we are still a year away from the midterms and there will be undoubtedly another issue. Like, lest we forget the Supreme Court is going to rule on the constitutionality of Roe v. Wade later this summer in theory. We actually have empirical information on how predictive the results of off-year elections like those in Virginia and New Jersey are of the 2022 midterms. How predictive are they when we aggregate everything and not specifically talk about this year? There's sort of a thought that they are mixed in terms of how exactly predictive they are. But I do think that they can at least offer a signal of where things are headed. For instance, if McAuliffe does win, Democrats will be happy But if it's a really, really close race in a state that Biden carried by 10 points, you know, that suggests that there has been at least some shift to the right and that that might augur at least somewhat poorly for Democrats next year. Doesn't necessarily mean that the margin that in the national House vote is going to perfectly match up with that or how much the state has swung to the right. But it at least could suggest that heading into the 2022 midterm year, that that's where things are at the moment. That said, though, this was analysis that Harry Enton, now at CNN, did for us at 538 when he was still here. He found, though, Virginia at least isn't very predictive of where the national popular vote in the House is going to be in a midterm election. He found about a seven percentage point difference. And that's a fairly large miss. So to some extent, I do want to stress that even if Virginia is a close result, that isn't necessarily all that indicative of where we'll be a year from now. If you had to say what a benchmark is for a good night for Republicans and a good night for Democrats looks like, where's the benchmark before we actually get the results and before everything gets spun based on whatever incentives people have to spin the actual election night results? Basically, a good result for the GOP is McAuliffe plus two to any margin Youngkin wins by. And then maybe for Democrats, if McAuliffe actually wins by more than a couple and runs against what the polls have shown here at the end, that that would be like, oh, maybe it wasn't as bad as we thought kind of reaction. The most likely outcome here is probably Republicans feeling good about the outcome. I do think the expectations game is so silly because on the one hand, if you had told people back in May that the week before the election, you'd have polls coming out showing Youngkin up by eight. Like, I think that's what that Fox poll showed. People would think you were crazy. They would just think, like, that's wildly outperforming anything in the realm of reality that Republicans could achieve. So Youngkin making it close, McAuliffe only winning by two, by a May of 2021 standard, yeah, that's great. That's way outperforming expectations. But I do think that Republicans have now gotten so excited about Youngkin, and you're beginning to see the, hey, Youngkin had 1,000 people at his rally, and McAuliffe only had six people, and half of them were employees, that type of, of talk, that it's when they start really thinking, okay, our side's got the momentum, we've got it, we can do this, that suddenly now the expectation, at least among Republicans, really is, I think we've got this. And so I do think there will be disappointment even if it's like a very narrow McAuliffe win, I think Republicans will still not feel, well, we can spin this as a win. I think they'll still feel pretty disappointed. But I still maintain that Republicans are still going to focus on education and trying to talk about the economy the way that Youngkin did across the country, as long as it's close. 
Virginia's partisan lean is actually D plus five, according to our partisan lean. So I think McAuliffe really does want to hit five points or more. That suggests maybe the polls were a little off. McAuliffe was safer than we had realized. Um, but I think as Jeffrey was getting at, any narrow loss even for Youngkin is a win for Republicans. As we are watching the results come in on Tuesday night, you know, we talked a little bit about areas of the electorate that have shifted. Are there particular places in Virginia that we should be watching for as the results come in to give us some sort of sense of where the race is headed, number one. And number two, because of the way that the vote is now segmented with early vote, day of vote, and different counties obviously taking different amounts of time to tally, does this kind of looking at a bellwether county approach make sense? So I think that it does. And I've got two counties in particular that I'm going to be focused on. And those counties are Loudoun County, which if you are not familiar with Virginia, Loudoun is a very sort of upscale, exurban, it's like horse and wine country. It's outside of D.C., about a 45-minute to an hour and a half drive. And it's the kind of place that voted for George W. Bush by reasonable margins both times. And then swung and, and voted very slightly for Obama, but voted big for Bob McDonald, who is somebody we haven't talked about on this podcast yet, but I think is an interesting historical is 2009 historical, historical example. I mean, these days it feels like it. Yes, of a, of a Virginia Republican coming in and saying, you know, his slogan was Bob's for Jobs, like a really economic, heavy, I'm going to appeal to moderate Republicans and the suburbs type message. But with the exception of McDonald, Loudon and Henrico, which is the suburbs around Richmond, voted for George W. Bush twice, and then slowly, you know, the Obama era comes, they become slightly Democratic, and they just trend bluer and bluer at the presidential level. In 2020, if you look at Loudoun, Loudoun voted for Biden by 61.5 to Trump's 36.5, so a huge margin there. And Rico, kind of similar numbers, 63.6% went for Biden, only 34.6 went for Trump. This used to be the sort of place George W. Bush would win. And now both of these important counties have become, you know, D plus 30 type places. But I think they're exactly the types of places where Youngkin's message is going to be making an impact. And so if you're just looking for two sizable counties that I think have a potential to be really swingy here, those are my two. Yeah, uh, those are two really good ones. I would also add two places that are a bit more Republican-leaning than the state as a whole, but that Biden carried and that if Democrats win are very much a signal that they're going to win the state. And if Republicans win but don't win them by very much, they also may not be enough to win the state for the GOP. And those are uh, Chesterfield County, south of Richmond, so a neighbor of Henrico, and then the city of Virginia Beach down in the southeast corner of the state. These are places that are to the right of the state usually, but Biden narrowly carried Chesterfield, which had voted Republican for a very long time. And part of that is like, you know, it's sort of increasingly diverse, very upscale, suburban place, but it's been trending Democratic. And it's sort of a question of, I think Yunkin's going to win it given the, the way the race is going, but it's sort of by how much. Is it only like two points? Or does he win it by like five or six and sort of return closer to the margins that GOP used to win in a county like that before Trump entered the picture or even by more back then? And then for Virginia Beach, you know, it's a place that Biden carried by a little bit. Usually if you see Virginia Beach go blue on election night, you know, Democrats are winning statewide. So Yunkin very well may carry it. And then it's sort of a question of is it by a couple points or is it by like five or six? Because if it's that, then maybe Yunkin's winning. I do want to ask here, you know, we've been talking about the parts of the electorate and the parts of the state that may be shifting from blue to red. We also know from looking at the polling that Republican voters in general are pretty enthusiastic. And that's why we see that in likely voter models, Yunkin is doing better than just amongst registered voters. So I'm curious when it comes to not necessarily the swingier parts of the electorate, but reliable Republican voters and reliable Democratic voters what kind of engagement are we seeing on the left from young voters or voters of color who are reliably voting for Democrats? Are they as amped up as the right in this election? What I'm seeing in my polling is that 
and our, we just came out of the field late last week, was we weren't seeing as much of a divide in enthusiasm between Republicans and Democrats. Now, that's very different than what CBS's polling showed about a month earlier. A month before the election, Republicans were fired up, they were ready to go, they were enthusiastic, where McAuliffe supporters were a little, a little less so. But it's almost as though Virginia Democrats got the memo that this was a real race in enough time to get fired up to begin participating. I do wonder if the election was held, you know, a few weeks ago, would there have been a big enthusiasm and turnout differential that has now shrunken a bit as we've gotten closer and closer to election day? I did see more enthusiasm among Republicans in that CBS poll where my polling from last week showed very little divide in enthusiasm between the Democrats and Republicans. And part of that, by the way, I wonder, is one thing that we haven't talked about a ton is McAuliffe's attempts to sort of tie Youngkin to Donald Trump. And Youngkin has been very savvy, as you noted, Sarah, avoiding, like, he says what he has to in order to demonstrate that he's a Republican and he is in line with the Republican electorate, but is not so over the line that a swing voter couldn't vote for him. It was interesting. You saw McAuliffe sort of poking at Trump and McAuliffe and Biden during their rally, like, hey, why don't you come up here? And then, of course, toward the end of last week was that big moment that I'm sure was a little bit of a scare for Team Youngkin, where you had Trump saying, Arlington, I'll see you on Monday. And it was like, whoa, <laughs> wait a minute, what's he doing? I wonder to what extent, you know, at the end of this, has trying to tie Youngkin to Trump, is it successful at all? And is it, at a minimum, at least sort of firing up progressives, even if it's not doing much on the persuasion front, is it at least getting McAuliffe reliable Democratic voters to turn out? Right. I think there was an easy narrative coming out of the California recall election, which at one point had shown a very close race on the question of whether to recall Newsom. And then Newsom won handily, right? Much more than even our final polling average suggested. However, you know, as Kristen said earlier, like candidates really matter. Larry Elder was not a great candidate for the GOP in that state. He was tied more directly to Trump than Youngkin is, as Kristen was noting. But on this question of enthusiasm, I think that is harder to answer because while polls have suggested that there is a gap, that was true as well in California. And as we very clearly saw, you know, there wasn't a gap on the actual election. Now, granted, California, a lot of ballots are mail ballots, and that's not going to be the same story here in Virginia, even though there will be a sizable absentee vote going into Tuesday. But that plays a difference. And in the last two, three national elections, we've seen like huge voter turnout. Is that a new trend now moving forward where turnout really on both sides, despite who says they're more enthusiastic, is consistently high? You know, I think Virginia is another data point on that front as well. To the question about young people, who's more enthused and, and what have you, I think a couple of things that people should keep in mind are that, generally speaking, in a non-presidential election, the party that is not in the White House, their voter base is going to be more engaged. There's like this concept of differential turnout. It's like the idea that all else being equal, your average Republican is going to be more likely to show up with a Democrat in the White House than a Democrat is, and vice versa. We saw during the Trump era, of course, that a Democrat was more likely to show up than a Republican. And so that's inevitably going to play out in part here. And so to some extent, like the Virginia governor's race was always going to be closer than the presidential race in 2020. And at the same time, we can expect young voters to show up at a lower rate than they did in the presidential cycle. And that's like not at all surprising. Now, of course, how much less they show up is important for Democrats particularly because it's a more Democratic-leaning age group. But it's like sort of these things that are just – I don't know if I want to say they're like fundamental truths, but they are just patterns that we generally should expect to see in elections under certain circumstances. And so the idea that young people are not as engaged in an off-year election in Virginia than they were with the presidential races – about the least stunning thing you can imagine hearing. So I, I think that's like good for people to remember that like there are certain patterns to our politics that show up. And so the idea that this race has ended up being close is not really all that shocking at the end of the day because it might have been closer even if Biden were doing really well, if his approval rating were like 55%, also because Republicans would just still be maybe more energized to show up because they're not happy with the status quo. So these are like just important factors I think people should keep in mind. All right. So certainly some things to keep our eyes on in Virginia. Before I let you all go, I do want to talk about the other statewide race, which, of course, is in New Jersey. So we don't have enough polling for an average in the New Jersey governor's race. But the last time last week when we talked about 
this race, we had just gotten a high quality poll showing only a four point lead for Democratic incumbent Phil Murphy. Since then, we got three high quality polls, putting his lead at nine points in two polls and 11 points in another. So how should we characterize that race? At this point, does the four point lead seem like an outlier? Yeah, I mean, I I think we're expecting the race to probably go for Phil Murphy, the the incumbent Democratic governor. It's sort of a question of the margin. And again, that could tell you something about the environment if the race ends up being more like that four point poll uh, in the end. You know, that'd be a really good data point, I think, for Republicans. And if the race is more in like the high single digits, you know, maybe that's a little less clear in terms of what it indicates. I think it's important to remember the difference between Virginia and New Jersey here is there is an incumbent governor involved. He is decently popular. So that I think the nice thing about the Virginia race is that there's no incumbency factor to really take in, even if McAuliffe is running again. And so maybe you could make an argument for that. But the incumbent factor can, I think, confuse things a little bit. Also, New Jersey actually has a history of voting for Republican governors, even though it has been a Democratic-leaning state for a long time. And you see in polls that voters say like an issue like taxes is really important, like the most important issue, the first priority for the next governor should be taxes. And Murphy doesn't pull very well on taxes. Jack Chitterelli, the Republican, pulls better than him in, in terms of who New Jerseyans would trust. But yet Murphy might still be in a position where he's going to win somewhat comfortably in the end. And I think that just says something about the potential for a Republican who is not super Trumpy. Jack Chitterelli is not, not a super Trumpy Republican to win in a state like New Jersey or do better than you might expect because there are people who are concerned about economic and financial issues. And so maybe Chitterelli worked well on that front compared to one of the Trumpier opponents he faced in the Republican primary, for instance. Uh, if that person had won, then uh, or either of them had won, maybe Murphy would be really sailing to re-election. Yeah, the polling around this race, you know, what little polling we have does not really look like the polling did back in 2009. Again, going back to ancient history when Chris Christie was was first victorious. I mean, I, I just pulled up all of the polls from 2009 and you had about half the polls that were coming out there in that last week had Christie ahead. And, and even those that had John Corzine ahead, it was by really narrow margins. You know, Monmouth only had Corzine up by two. So you had an awful lot of data suggesting that Chris Christie was perfectly capable of winning in a way that we just don't have that kind of data today. If this race is even close in New Jersey, this is going to be another one of those big oh my gosh, what's going on with the polls kind of moments. So that's why I, I think it has, just hasn't gotten as much attention because um, the Virginia race just seems like it's defying some expectations so much and is so close. Um, it's also right in the backyard of our nation's political media uh, industrial complex, where New Jersey is, again, very close to New York, so not far away from the media by any stretch. But this polling just doesn't look like the polling did in 2009, the last time Republicans pulled this off. Right. And it is notable, too, that in New Jersey, at least, Biden's underwater, but only by six points, right? So better than his national average. And so I think what you're seeing at play there is New Jersey is simply a bluer state than Virginia. And so while some of the same issues, whether that's education, taxes, are also playing out in New Jersey, it's just not playing out to the same extent as we see in Virginia. Yeah. We talked a little bit about some of this polling last week, but far and away, the number one priority for voters in New Jersey is taxes. And then secondarily is jobs. Both of those are economic issues. I'm curious, Kristen, in the polling that you have done, how people are thinking about the economy in this moment, understanding that education is playing a big role in Virginia, but it's not everything. Sure. So one thing that I began seeing back in the spring that honestly surprised me and I didn't know what to make of it and now has become very clear is people connecting rising cost of living and inflation to government economic policies. This was during the American Rescue Plan. We were testing, okay, what are the things that people would most want to see out of this plan? What are their biggest concerns about the plan? And the biggest concern we found, and I say biggest, it was pretty close to other things we tested, but it it was, I think, top of the list, was that they were worried that the government spending this much money would lead to inflation and rising cost of living. Now, I've been in this business for a while, not as long as some people, but I've, I've been doing this for over a decade and a half, and I've just never seen inflation itself popping up as something that voters were deeply concerned about. You'll have things like gas prices, you know, prices on individual items that, that worry people, but overall inflation 
it was very strange to me to see that pop up. And yet, as the summer progressed, you began to see it, it was not just this weird outlier thing. It was coming up over and over that people were saying, hey, how come all of this stuff I buy when I go to the grocery store, when I go to the gas pump, et cetera, why is it all so much more expensive? And yes, at the same time, there's a, a labor shortage. And so it's not as though wages are sagging right now. But for a lot of people, it doesn't feel like those wages are catching up. And I think most damaging for Democrats is then later in the summer when we asked, well, what do you think is causing this inflation? How much is each of the following contributing? Well, people think that the world coming back to normal post-COVID-19, if we are post-COVID-19, which is debatable as well, that that was a part of it, but also the government spending money was something that an awful lot of people said they thought was a factor. Now, I know economists would hotly debate whether that is the case, but from a public opinion perspective, I think that's a real challenge for Democrats. If voters feel like, the Democratic Party does not care enough or is not concerned enough about cost of living, or if their answer is like, well, let's just subsidize everything and keep throwing more government money at the problem, I don't know that that's a winning economic message for them as much as it, it maybe would have been in the past. What well, kind of, I think, ties into this is also the reaction to having a Democratic-run government across the board and the idea of like what they call thermostatic public opinion, where- I love thermostatic public opinion. <laughs> yeah, you know, during, you know, like a Republican presidency, maybe people are start to say, well, actually, I would, might prefer more government intervention in the economy. And now with the Democrat in the White House and Democrats controlling the Senate and the House, people now are saying, eh, let's have a little less government spending, less government intervention as a sort of a reaction. So I think having like the inflation issue and then tying it into that, I, I just think that they sort of work hand in hand to some extent. Yeah, people always want what they don't have. All right, well, I think this is a good place to leave things for now. We're going to bring on our colleague Nathaniel Rakich and talk about some of the local races, but I'll let you all go. So thank you, Kristen, Jeff, and Sarah. And I should say, Kristen, you are launching a newsletter today. I am. It's called Codebook. You can find it at codebook.bulletin.com. I'm launching it this week. My first post up later in the week is going to be all about what happened in Virginia. I'll be breaking it all down so you can subscribe at codebook.bulletin.com. Awesome. All right, let's look at some of the other elections happening on Tuesday. But first... Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen. As I mentioned at the top, mayoral races in cities around the country will pit progressive and moderate Democrats against each other. And ballot initiatives will put questions about policing and gerrymandering and lots of other things to the voters. So here with me to discuss is Nathaniel Rakich. Hey, Nathaniel. Hey, Galen. So I know that local elections and ballot initiatives are your jam. What's at the top of your list for Election Day 2021? What are the most interesting local races? We'll start there and then we can get into some of the ballot initiatives. So I'm actually going to go for a twofer, Galen, a city with both a mayoral race and a ballot measure, actually two that are kind of interesting. And the city is Minneapolis. So obviously folks know that George Floyd was murdered in Minneapolis by um, police officers there last summer. And in many ways, the aftermath of that event is on the ballot here in 2021. So the mayor, Jacob Frey, is facing voters for the first time since that happened. And he was actually initially elected on a platform of more police accountability. And obviously, a lot of folks, particularly on the left, believe that he hasn't lived up to that. He didn't, wasn't able to make any reforms, obviously, that would have prevented George Floyd's death. And they think that he has been too soft afterward as well. Most notably, he has opposed the city council's efforts to defund the police. And so he's going to be on the ballot. He's facing two progressives who I would say are the two strongest candidates. And they've actually made a pact similar to what we saw in New York City earlier this year between Catherine Garcia and Andrew Yang, or rather Andrew Yang plumbed on to Catherine Garcia. But basically these two progressives, Kate Knuth and Sheila Nazad, have 
said you should rank the other person second, my supporters. So they're hoping that combined under ranked choice voting, which uh, Minneapolis has, their supporters will combine in a later round in order to overtake Frey and an elected more progressive mayor. At the same time in Minneapolis, they're voting on two local ballot measures, one that would switch the city to a strong mayor system. So some cities have a strong mayor where the mayor is like the president of the city and they have a lot of executive powers. And then other cities, the mayor is kind of almost like a figurehead or just kind of the most powerful city councilor. And so this ballot measure would give more power to the mayor's office. And obviously that has also become kind of a referendum on on Frey and, and his handling of things, particularly with the police. And then we also have this ballot measure on question two. It kind of has the language of defund the police, but it isn't strictly speaking defunding the police. It would replace the Minneapolis Police Department with a Department of Public Safety, which would include things like police officers, but also kind of focus more on you know mental health, social services and stuff like that. So similar to how the defund the police movement slogan has as it says defund the police and it's right there in the title, but really a lot of those people just mean diverting some of those funds to social services and stuff like that. And so it's kind of along those lines where opponents of defund the police are saying, oh, this is terrible. It's going to defund the police and and hurt public safety. But supporters are saying, no, it's actually more complicated and more nuanced than that. Um, And so kind of between these three questions, I really think that police and and the future of police accountability and stuff like that is on the ballot in Minneapolis. It's going to be a lot of an outlet for a lot of people's emotions, I think, from the past year to kind of express themselves on the ballot. Um, And it'll be interesting to see what the combination is and whether there's some split decisions here. Minneapolis, for instance, could vote to give the mayor's office more power, but also vote to dissolve the police department or create this new Department of Public Safety, which wouldn't be under the mayor's control. And they could choose to throw out or keep their current mayor. And this article that I wrote with Maggie Kurth on the website, which I encourage people to check out, found that Minneapolis residents, there's a term, Minneapolitans. I'm so sorry, I can't say that. Minneapolitans? Yeah, it's like the ice cream, except with Minneapolis, Minneapolitans. Minneapolitans. All right, there you like go. That. Minneapolitans. Okay. There was a really interesting poll of Minneapolis voters that found that they have very conflicting feelings when it comes to the Minneapolis police. So they have very low opinions of the police, but they are afraid of what would happen basically if they defunded it. So they said they oppose taking money away from it or having fewer police officers. Similarly, you know, Mayor Frey doesn't have great approval ratings, but there is some indication that they might trust him over the city council when it comes to dealing with this stuff. So lots of possible outcomes in Minneapolis, you know, with perhaps not national implications so much, but the things that I think folks around the country will be interested in just because of what happened in Minneapolis last year. So some notable and consequential questions being put to voters in Minneapolis. Of course, we will be tracking that on the live blog on Tuesday night, along with all of the other races. And many of those other races are mayoral elections around the country that are pitting moderate and more progressive Democrats against each other, much like the New York City mayoral primary that we covered earlier this year on the podcast. And so I want to zoom in on some of those races for a minute. Maybe we'll play a game, see how much information you can give me about each of these cities' elections in, say, I'll give you 45 seconds. So we're going to go Boston, your favorite, of course. We'll go Cleveland, Seattle, and Buffalo. So we got four. And we're going to do a two-time speed review of the mayoral races there. So number one, Boston. What do we have? Okay, so Boston is a race between two city councilors, Michelle Wu, who is a progressive. She's a protege of Elizabeth Warren's. And then you have Anissa Sabi-George, who is more moderate, although you know really just kind of mainstream liberal. She's kind of a, a Joe Biden Democrat. Um, she's closely aligned with the former mayor, Marty Walsh, who, who left to become a member of Joe Biden's cabinet. But this is one race that's looking pretty good for the progressive side. Wu handily leads in the polls that we've seen here. So it looks like progressives are going to notch a win in Boston. Oh my goodness, you did it in under 45 seconds. All right, let's move on to Cleveland. Let me reset my timer. Here we go, Cleveland. So in Cleveland, you have a race between the city council president, Kevin Kelly. He's very much an establishment figure. He's served on the city council for a long time. He's 53 years old to not old, but you know, on the old, he's older than his opponent. He's white as well. And his opponent is nonprofit executive Justin Bibb. He's a 34-year-old black progressive. So really, it's a ton of contrasts in that race. So that is going to be a really interesting race to watch. That's one where actually I haven't seen any polls. Um, so I'm not sure exactly how that's going to shake out. Once again, under 45 seconds, maybe I should have challenged you a little bit more, but no, this is good. Okay. So next up, we have Seattle. 
So Seattle is one where probably the establishment has the upper hand. So there you have uh, former city council president Bruce Harrell, and then he's facing the current city council president, who's Lorena Gonzalez. And Gonzalez has the support of Bernie Sanders, Pramila Jayapal, a lot of progressive folks. Harrell kind of has more of a business-friendly reputation from his time on the council. But again, this is Seattle, just like in Boston. Both candidates are liberal. It's just a question of are they liberal or are they extremely liberal? And this is a race where Harrell seems to have the upper hand based on polling. One poll I saw had Harrell up 48% to 32%. Gonzalez also had a misstep where she aired an ad that tried to accuse Harrell of being soft on sexual assault allegations, but that ad backfired. Harrell is half black and he accused the ad of kind of playing into stereotypes. The ad featured a white woman kind of making these accusations against him. So that doesn't seem to have helped Gonzalez. So it seems like Harrell is going to be the next mayor of Seattle. All right. That was a little over a minute, but you accrued some time from the other races, so we'll give it to you. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Lastly is Buffalo, which has an interesting dynamic that it wasn't planned to be a choice between two Democrats, but it looks like it's going to be. Exactly. Yeah. Buffalo has a, a traditional system where you pick the primary you know, winner, the Democrats or Republicans and stuff in, in the spring, and then you move on to Democrat versus Republican in November. And you had that race and Democratic Socialist India Walton actually upset the incumbent mayor of Buffalo, Byron Brown. And we thought that Walton had clinched her victory then because there's actually no Republican on the ballot. But Brown actually is not going away quietly. And he decided to wage a write-in campaign. And it actually looks that between the support of more conservatives, some of the Republicans who live in Buffalo, as well as the moderate Democrats who supported him in the primary, they're staying in his corner. He's got a, a strong apparatus you know, as the longtime mayor of Buffalo. So it's hard to poll these write-in races, but uh, Emerson College did find that Brown was leading 54% to 36%. So that looks like it could be a victory for the establishment as well. But again, Walton being the only name on the ballot, I think a lot of people will just fill her in automatically because of that. So that'll be an interesting one to watch. So those are some of the races that are pitting the progressives and moderates against each other. Atlanta is also having a mayoral race, which is not exactly the same dynamic. What are we expecting there? Yeah, I definitely want to mention that because obviously Atlanta is a major city, an important city for Democrats. Um, that hasn't broken down on along these progressive moderate lines. I would say that most of the candidates in that race are tending toward more moderate. Atlanta is a city that crime has been a big problem in. It's overwhelmingly the top issue of voters there in polls. And so a lot of candidates are kind of running toward the right or at least the center in terms of crime, saying they will hire more police officers, et cetera. The kind of rise in crime has created an opening for former mayor Kasim Reed to make a comeback. He was pretty popular when he was mayor. He had low crime rates during that time, but he also kind of had some issues with corruption in his administration, not specifically allegations against him, but kind of under him. Him. And so he kind of left office with an uncertain political future, but he has made a comeback here and he looks like he is probably going to be one of the two candidates who advances to the runoff. This is kind of like the primary in Atlanta. And my money would be on city council president Felicia Moore being the other candidate. But again, both of them are kind of more moderate on issues of policing and other things. But it has been an interesting race just in terms of how there hasn't really been a loud progressive voice in that race. Voters are also going to be deciding on ballot initiatives on Tuesday. You mentioned, of course, in Minneapolis. I wish we had time here on this podcast to cover every ballot in the nation and what kinds of questions voters are going to be asked and be deciding. But since we can't do that, do you have a top couple ballot initiatives that you want to shout out before we go? Yeah. And in fact, I would say that this hasn't been a real banner year for ballot initiatives. Normally, I would be like, Galen, you got to let me talk about these 10 ballot measures. But a lot of things are just kind of fiscal measures and things like that that are certainly important if you live in, in that state or city, but aren't necessarily of interest to our national audience. There's a reason why there aren't a lot of ballot initiatives yeah. this year. And it's because people use them to drive out voters in actual more consequential elections. And there aren't a lot of statewide or obviously national elections this year. And so... You know, you can't use those wedge issues and ballot initiatives and things like that to drive out voters. And so if you want to do that, next year is your year or, of course, 2024. 
Well, I would actually say, though, Galen, that like normally in these odd years, there are a decent number of interesting ballot measures. But even compared to like 2019 or 2017, the number has decreased. And I think it's because of the pandemic. Hmm. In order to put ballot measures on the ballot, of course, typically you have to go out and collect signatures and stuff like that. And we saw in 2020 that the number of ballot measures, I think, was at like a, the lowest point in, in decades. And I think that it was because those signature gathering efforts were hampered. And I think that that seems to have carried over to this year. So the three ballot measures that I think are particularly interesting this year were actually all referred to the ballot by the legislature in New York specifically. So these are proposals one, three, and four for those of you who live in New York. Um, Proposal one is about redistricting. So folks might know that New York is trying out this new, very complicated redistricting system where they have this advisory committee or commission that's supposed to draw fair maps, but then through kind of a series of complicated back and forths, eventually the legislature has the final say in those maps. And currently, because the legislature is fully controlled by Democrats, they have to have a two-thirds majority vote in order to pass any congressional maps. And this measure would lower that threshold down to 60%. So essentially opponents are saying in particular that it would make it easier for New York Democrats to gerrymander their congressional and legislative maps. And then, yeah, finally, these proposals three and four are to bring same-day voter registration and no-excuse absentee voting to New York. Again, folks probably remember from the 2020 election when the pandemic hit, a lot of states tried to liberalize their election laws and, and New York was able to do that kind of through like a loophole. You know, it like added the pandemic basically as an excuse for voting absentee. But a lot of people were pointing out New York and a lot of other blue states have these antiquated voting laws that ban no excuse absentee voting or in this case, same day voter registration as well, which isn't really congruous with the current Democratic Party's interest in expanding voting opportunities, making it easier to vote and stuff like that. And so this is an opportunity for New York to come more in line with that kind of Democratic priority. Um, And so the prohibition on same day voter registration and no excuse absentee voting are in the state constitution. And so they need voter approval in order to abolish them. And so that's basically what this does. All right. Well, we will watch what happens in New York alongside these other local races and, of course, the races in Virginia and New Jersey. But let's leave it there. So thank you, Nathaniel. Thanks, Galen. As I mentioned, we are going to be live blogging on 538.com throughout Tuesday night, very likely into Wednesday morning. We'll be late night podcasting. We will have you covered for election night 2021, which again, hopefully does not turn into election week or election month. But that's it for now. We will see you late Tuesday night. My name is Galen Druk. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. Claire Bidigari Curtis is on audio editing. And Emma Riley is our intern. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or a review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.